Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, a podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Caroline Ward, who is a student of the Brahma Kumaris. Caroline grew up in Sydney, but has spent time in over 60 countries, most recently in South America. We spent the first half of the conversation talking about the beliefs and practices of the Brahma Kumaris, while in the second half of the conversation, we focus more on Caroline's personal and beautiful story of how she began her spiritual journey. We started the conversation by talking about one of the particular practices of the Brahma Kumaris, which is their open eye meditation. And so, everyone, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. The Brahma Kumaris do something quite interesting in, well, they seem to do something quite interesting in the way they, they practice their Raja Yoga practice, which is quite distinct from the other sort of Raja Yogas that were developed yeah. in the, the 19th century. Yes. The, what Swami... Patanjali. Yeah, yeah. Vivekananda, what he was coming up with. Um, and I think the most distinct part about it is the meditation with your eyes open, yeah. which... I've been trying to do that the past couple of days and it's both harder and easier to do than uh, the contemplation with your eyes closed. Yeah. Um, and from what I've, from what I've seen or from what I've read about it, it's the, the point is to remain meditative in your day to day life. So that when you go to work, when you're in transit on the bus or yeah. on the train, yeah. when you're meeting with your friends on the weekend, you're, remaining conscious yeah. and contemplative at the same time, which you practice through yeah. keeping your eyes open. Am I getting close to... You're so to- close, yeah, so really. Um, and, you know, I, I think, Jack, for me, you know, meditation is called a practice. In a way, it's not a thing in itself. It's like the training wheels for living consciously. And why I think the open eye meditation, as much as I have to admit, sometimes I really like to just close my eyes and like go into this sort of cave-like situation inside that's all cozy and, but you know, it has some traps because in this modern world where everybody's over-revved and under-rested, as soon as you close your eyes, it's like, oh, we're going into sleep territory. So, you know, one of the things about open eye also is about um, being able to stay awake, awake, physically awake. But the other thing, it is a, it's a practice for being awake to who I really am. And, you know, the more that I'm, like when I practice with my eyes open, then I just can leave from that meditative space and keep going. And it's, and is it meditation or is it just being real, being authentic, being true, being connected to who I am. And then if I know that I am this kind of unlimited being, and I know it intellectually, but the meditative practice lets me kind of connect with that and feel that and go, wow, and then I start to see others like that, these beings of peace and beauty and love and joy and and, you know, we know about the Pygmalion effect where if you look at someone as if they can, then they can. So this practice of meditating means that we were talking about this this morning in our 
class. So, you know, there's a, a meditation early in the morning for those who who are committed to knowing. Actually, it's not a, it's a commitment, but it's also so good when the world's quiet. There's no noise. There's no movement. It's like this secret connection between you, your own kind of pure internal self sometimes it's not it's full of noise internally but mostly you wake up and there if you if you're awake then it's an easy connection to to god to the supreme to the source to the one to the whatever name people you know want to call or no name you know just that energy that is so beautiful so we do that and then you know, a bit of a break, get yourself washed up ready and, and then more meditation in a class. And we were talking in the class today how the idea is that you, every person you interact with, you know, you use that opportunity to be awake together. Even if you don't know, you're not talking about it. But, you know, I, I love that when I go into... You know, yesterday I was at the Medicare office and uh, and I was just doing like that and, and they were really responding and I was responding and we created this really great space. Which isn't the sort of thing that well, usually happens at first. Jack, those. the two days before I was there and it was not that. I, I, like I'm, I'm not the perfect Rajogi all the time because it was like, no, we can't, no, we can't, you didn't bring the right thing. I said, but they told me this. No, wrong, wrong. And I just like, I, was trying, I said, look, you know, I could do with a bit of human kindness here if you don't mind. No, nothing. So normally, yeah, I got, I got trapped in that. But yesterday... I, you know, kind of went in a different way. So I think we've sort of dove in a bit to uh, some of the practice, but yes. taking a few steps steps back and uh, talking about uh, the Kumaris a bit more, more generally, um, one of the main focuses of the religion is, as you were talking about before, the idea of the soul yeah. and... The, the soul the soul is sort of predominant in the religion and the soul is is a god in and of itself and every person has one within one within them not exactly okay yeah so like all the words are in there and it's but in the like, wrong order <laughs> well, no but and and I also if I can um kind of step back a little too because I there are times it really does look like it is. Um, you know, one would call it a religion and like an institutionalized religion, because that is in in essence what it what it almost has become. I would say, by nature of the fact that when you bring a group of people together and you have places, you have to follow the laws of the land, and so you incorporate and you do all those things. But for me, as I'm not like the official spokesperson for the Brahma Kumaris, if if it was sold to me like that, I would run a mile. As sold to you as a, as an institutionalized as a, religion. Otherwise, yeah. I'd still be doing Catholicism. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, for me, it's the same thing. If you're going to get imposed upon by an external institution that is hierarchical, that says you can't get to God except through, you know, it's these human beings, or you have to follow these human beings telling you what to do. I, so, so. I would say that for me the it's very much a 
a movement of awakening um, where the onus really is on the individual but the support is within a community. So that's how I frame it because that's what works for me. I love the support of a community um, and I, I personally really need the freedom to do my journey and know that that's not going to be judged right or wrong. It's absolutely authentic. I can take guidance from someone who's more experienced and all of that, but I have the freedom to, to explore my journey. So in that sense, I, w- I just want to underline, I think it's a spiritual path. It's, um, it's a, a worldwide movement. And when I say movement, it's like moving human energy to wake up to what is more true. And so on that basis, let me go to the second part, which is the understanding of soul. And I, I think, um, Jack, words are really tricky, you know, because some people have, um, I, I remember doing a course once and someone used this, said words are semantically packed. So it means like for some person, like for example, the word God the Father, that those words, I resisted those words for at least 18, 19 years, this whole notion of a, uh, you know, this um, father figure that was presiding over. I had some old story that was deep in my emotional world that made me resist that aspect of the divine, of God. And and I remember one day going, um, look, you know, in our teachings, it's there regularly if I'm going to stay doing this, I should at least, at least try it out. And I went, okay, I'll try it for a couple of days, you know. And so I went, all right, all right, God the Father. And I immediately, in this sort of surrender to that, had such a deep experience of feeling secure, of feeling safe, like someone had my back. I went, wow, I've been missing out on that for like 18 years <laughs> because of this kind of unconscious resistance that wasn't even unconscious really. So when we say soul, I know some people will go and and it gets confused. Some people go, well, soul is different from spirit is different. In this case, what in Brahma Kumaris would say each one, not that you have a soul, that you are a soul, that I, the soul, am this spark of pure consciousness, this kind of star, this tiny point of pure light, energy, consciousness, and that this energy that I am, that's immortal, eternal, that exists beyond and forever, that when I incarnate into form, into the world of matter and this world on the earth, the body, then the, the molecules, the atoms, the protons, everything starts to move and shape and form around this being that I am. And so that's why we're all so, we look different, even identical twins as 
alike as they are, they're still different because the physical form is an expression of our essence of or, and of our, you know, our, our strengths and our, you know, not so strengths, <laughs> our weaknesses. So the soul, we would say in Brahma Kumaris, is who I am essentially, eternally. I, I come from the land, the world of souls, this, this home. I incarnate here. I take a body and we would say that reincar reincarnation is part of that. So if I can take one, if I can create one, I can create another one. You know, we wouldn't keep driving a car until the wheels are falling off and, you know, the seats don't work anymore. We, we would trade it in. Yeah. But we, because we think we are our bodies, we don't have this sense of, well, okay, this one's not working so well anymore. We call it death. And it's terrible and it's frightening and it's traumatic, but it's just changing one molecular infrastructure like a car for another one. So that, that's the soul. And in its essence, in its purity, in its absoluteness, it's completely divine and godlike. Godlike. Not God, but godlike. Equal. In that sense of virtuous and divine, you know, being. But when we lose consciousness and we think, you think you're Jack and I think I'm Carolyn and so that means you're a young man and I'm an older woman and then I go, well, I'm an older woman and, and then I've got stories around what I have or I haven't done or what I've achieved or I haven't achieved, what's my, you know, I lived in Chile for 13 years. And the first question that they ask you when they meet you is, what's your profession? That is the very first question in Malaysia. No, not Malaysia, in Philippines when I went there. First thing that they want to know is your politics. So all of a sudden you're not this unlimited divine godlike being anymore. You're defined by your nationality, by your gender, by your education, by your sexual orientation, by where you went to school, by what suburb you live in. Um, are you a parent? Are you not? And so from being this divine being, as soon as we identify as form, as the body, not more than that, we reduce everything and now there are beliefs and limitations as to what we can do, how we can be. We have to behave certain ways if we're, you know, younger or older or women or men or you know, um, from if we're black or white or we're Muslim or we're Christian or, you know, like it's a whole mess because we got disconnected from the light that we all are. And so that's the essential teaching of the B case, that we are all the same before we show up in form and at the essence. And the soul resides where they talk about the third eye, the pineal gland back here. Um, and, you know, it's like the operator of the brain, it, the electrical impulses, the thoughts. So what are the thoughts that we have? So we, then we go into the idea that the soul is operating the thoughts when it's conscious. So meditation is a practice of being conscious of that. And when we talk about a supreme soul, so... In other traditions, that would be called God. Um, 
Allah, um, the one, the source, the, the universal, everything, all that is. And it for, for me anyway, and in the BK teachings, um, the form is the same. So it's a spark of light, eternal, immortal. The difference is that the supreme being, supreme soul, doesn't take a form, doesn't get, doesn't, isn't born into the world of matter, therefore never loses consciousness, is always, always constantly divine, full, beautiful, powerful, non-interventionist, which, you know, I didn't like at the beginning. I thought, you know, if I prayed <laughs> enough, yeah, if I prayed <laughs> enough, you were going to show up, you know. Um, but but in, in the BK practice of Raj Yoga is I am the soul, I am that, like I tune in to the vibration that I am. It's all about vibration, you know, the energy, frequency. So I tune into the, that, that I am, this spark. And then it's just a connection to that source because it's the same frequency like a radio. You know, you've got FM and FM, you're tuning in. If I'm Carolyn praying to this source, I'm in a different frequency. I'm usually asking for something. and Praying to that God, the that Father. That God, the yeah. Father, or the whatever, or the, you know, Mary, please intercede on behalf of, you know, whatever. But I'm, I'm instead of being, you know, in the same kind of uh, wavelength, the same tuning, I'm in this sort of victim you know, I, I don't have the scarcity I need. Whereas when I shift into who I am, that is the, if you like, the son, child, daughter, that from that lineage, then I, then I am the same. And plugging in, like tuning in energetically, then what happens is I, I remember because God is constant. I'm not. I forget. But there's no forgetting there. So when I kind of plug in, I go, oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. It's like going home, you know. It's interesting because the, the, the BK sort of grew out of the Hindu tradition. And uh, in, in Hinduism, there's that real emphasis on the universal and everyone is sort of a manifestation of the supreme being. So much so that you are the the person is is the atman at, at their soul. There they are. They are part of that that god. Whereas in the BKs, there's a, a a slight bit of separation where you you are your own soul. You are your own, for want of a better word, god. But then you come you come back to the supreme. Which is is a subtle, subtle but very, uh, very, I guess, meaningful difference, where it's sort of com- coming back instead of a realization, it's a return to to God or to to the Supreme, to that that higher source. Yeah, yeah. 
That's a really, really, really interesting way of kind of positioning. And and I can, like you said, the VKs came out of Hinduism or, or that they born, you know, was born in that context anyway. And at the very beginning, it's it's not unusual in, in like you say, to have various manifestations or, or um, incarnations of God divine, you know, many different avatars, they call them, you know, who are considered to be like Sai Baba was one. And um, they they will talk about, you know, even Ama, the, the mother, you know, like different different avatars. And at the beginning, um, for quite some years, they Brahma believed he was one of these avatars because he was enlightened, he was illuminated and was getting this sort of download almost or this waking up of clarity and he was on fire with light. I wasn't there, but that's those who were there were like, oh, my gosh, God incarnate. And so for a long time they believed that, that, that we're all the soul, the soul is the supreme soul, the same thing out of Hinduism, until it became really clear in their experiments. And that's what I love about when it's not a, when it's a path rather than a, a fixed dogma, is it can be tossed aside when you go, you know what, we were wrong. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in the experiment of this. This is a... This is an unfolding, waking up discovery and it's alive rather than a defending of a position and a dogma. And so it, they got to some point and they went, you know what, this is not the case at all. He's, I'm not an incarnation of God, you know. He's not, I'm not, we're not because there was this other presence that, that was illuminating him. And, you know, I wasn't there, so I can't say exactly what happened, and I'm sure some of it is legend, right? So, but, but what transpired, as I understand, was the presence of this, the light of God, went to be present in someone else, into one of the young women, and said, it's not you. You are not. You are not that one. You are making effort like anyone else. And then said, now let's get back to the work. And went back to kind of be present, not all the time, kind of coming and going, um, illuminating, waking up the memory of who they were. So, so in that sense, yes, it came out of Hinduism, and yes, they believed a lot of the beliefs, but they began to deconstruct based on, you know, especially a 14-year period where they were just almost isolated doing experiments of consciousness, basic ones like washing pots, being conscious, you know, walking, being conscious, like really basic things, plus going to school and cooking and, you know, all those things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's... um. It's funny that you mention uh, going to school because a big part of the the BK work is teaching. Um, uh, 
the the official name is the ah the, uh, the the Brahma Kumaris World Spiritual University exactly yeah yes. um a, a university so it's a it's a teaching and they're not they're not called believers they're called students and yeah. they sort of come to be be taught to learn to learn yeah a, a, a new a new way and a, and a I guess an, an enlightened way. Yeah, that's such a good distinction, Jack, and and it's the thing for for me as someone who has I've been doing this now almost thirty years, and um, and it's a thing that I love because it you 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 learn for yourself. It's not about believing that some some source, some other deity being is going to bestow a blessing on you and and you're going to be lucky or blessed or fortunate. Um, you can also believe that if you like, but, <laughs> but, but that's not going to make you the master of your own world, you know, in the sense that um, there are certain laws to the universe, we know that. I mean, gravity is a law, and um, the law of thermodynamics. Things begin in order, and they move to disorder. I mean, there are laws of this universe, and there are certain things that work and certain things that don't. And when you learn about that, everything begins in the unseen world. Everything begins with a thought. These microphones we're using, this computer, everything was a thought first. And from thought was then, well, how do we make that work? A chair was a thought, an idea. And so when we don't understand that we are unconsciously or consciously, either way, generating up to 60,000 thoughts a day, unconscious, most of them negative or useless, and that those are certain vibrational frequencies and we're responding all the time off what's around us, which is very often um, intense or tense or negative or just like ordinary, and we're just being battered around by that and kind of responding and absorbing. And that's like a base level of stuff that we haven't ever been taught about. And less religions have ever taught us about that. You know, they've taught us to be, we should be virtuous and we shouldn't sin and we shouldn't, but like go to the source, which is what is it that you are thinking? How are you, okay, don't covet thy neighbors anything, why are you doing that? Because you feel empty. Why do you feel empty? Because you're disconnected from the essence of who you are and from the source of all things. And you are the master of your destiny. If you think, like there's that old saying, as a man thinketh or as a person thinketh, so is their life, you know. So I love that it is a study. And when things work, you go, wow. That is so cool. I'm working with these young musicians, right, in Chile. A number of them are from Venezuela. So Venezuela is a country in complete decimation at the moment. The 
what they have done, the politics of that is just tragic. And the people are really joyful people. They're really beautiful. I mean, not everyone maybe, but generally the culture, they're really beautiful. And a lot of the um, musicians I'm working with there are, are from Venezuela as well, in Chile and Colombia, um, Brazil, Bolivia. And very few of them have any resources, financial, their families don't come from, and many of them are refugees, right? Not refugees, they're immigrants. And, and they're musicians as well, and classical musicians in South America. So it's like if you want to sign up for the poorest way of living in the universe, that's what you'd sign up for. That's where you go. Yeah, you'd go for that. <laughs> um, and yet what they are working with and they're just getting it and transforming their lives, that their thoughts create their vibration creates their way of acting, creates the response, creates what they're seeing, either opportunities or, um, you know, problems. And unbelievable the situations that have emerged in six months. These people, young people who thought they have, you know, they're victims and they need help and they need people to give them money and give, they're creating their lives. And it's just by changing the way that they think about themselves, about the world, practicing, you know, being grateful for, for life, appreciating and understanding it all begins from this essence that we are, not from the circumstances. And so that's what's so cool about understanding this is a study. It's not about following a set of beliefs. It's saying, okay, that's interesting. Or I always say to people, if I'm teaching or sharing, I say, I don't want you to believe anything I say. It's not about putting aside one set of beliefs and accepting a new set. This is about saying, well, that's interesting. Or I've got resistance to that. Why am I resisting? I'm not trying to make you believe anything. You don't need to resist. Test it. Or you're attached to some idea that you already have, you know. Which if it works for you, fine. But if it doesn't, like, look at that. And so I think it's like about waking up that we are each of us. You know, the, the, the source, the fundamental beginning of our lives. And we can blame everyone and anything else for that. Or we can just come back and go, okay. Today, how is it that I want to be in life? And start to generate that. How do I want to feel? One of the things that I found really interesting about the Brahma Kumaris is that they have this real emphasis on, as you've been saying, the realisation and awakening of the, the soul within oneself. And that is sort of the predominant idea that keeps um, the, the teaching keeps coming back to. Um, but, but as you would know, the, the, the BKs are quite involved um, with the UN and with what lot, a lot of like development goals. And they have this sort of broader social justice aspect to, to the work that they do. And on, on face value, those two things are a little bit at odds because one of them is about the, the, the individual, the self, and the realisation of 
the importance of the self, whereas the other is sort of more community-based, more social justice and trying to bring about mm. um, a, a betterment of sort of the worldly uh, possessions or disposition that a person will be in. Yeah. And I guess what, you're, what you've been saying is sort of a little bit of an answer to, to the question that arises from, from, that, from that sort of distinction of how sort of one leads to the other providing a way for people to realise themselves and then go out and interact with the world, I guess, differently in yeah. a way that places importance not only on themselves but on the people that they interact with. Yeah. I think there's a couple of layers in that. Um, Brahma Kumaris is not an, uh, a religion that proselytises but it is an education-based service organization. Yeah, that's probably that's probably a really good way to put it. It's, yeah. a, it's a service. Yeah, I, I, and I and services like we we have four subjects in our university study. Right, the first one is yoga, is that um, connection, the the practice of meditation or remembrance. I mean, really, I I like to call it more about it's like coming to rest in what is original and true. You know, before all the labels got put on me, what's at the beginning of that? And, and when I'm in that connected and resting in, in my origin, then I immediately can connect with the source, the origin, with God, the divine, and remember. It's just all about remembering. So it's the first one. Second one is study, knowledge. We have to learn, relearn, how everything works from the inside out, not from the outside in. What are my gifts, my specialties? What am I here for? How do I make a joyful life? Because maybe that's the point. Be joyful and, and loving and kind and live in that way. Um, so but how do I do that when everything's kind of crazy and I've got emotions and, you know, I feel... Some days tragic or, or I feel aggressive or arrogant. You know, like, God, how do I understand that? So and the third one is, um, it's called dharana, which is like um, the practice of embodying the teachings, not just having an intellectual understanding, but really embodying the teachings and the virtues, the powers, and, and practicing how does that show up in relationship, in my job, in, in my sphere of action because I'm, I'm not a, it's not about going onto the mountaintop or you know wandering off in the forest. It is about living in the family, in life, in the work, in, in the world and living a different kind of life. And so you have to be resilient because people you know sometimes make fun of you, you, you know. Sometimes. Oh, people are making fun of me all the time. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> no, because, you know, people like to feel safe in the norms. And if you choose something outside of that, if you don't feel 100% comfortable, then they get to you. Because, you know, it's like, ah, yeah, yeah, this is a fad or, you know. He's, there are some cracks that yeah, I can Yeah, really, yeah, yeah, they can like, get in wedge there. Into... And you don't feel comfortable at first. You do it like, you know, oh, but then, and then the fourth subject is um, service. So if you're 
trying something and it's working, then you want to share that. Not as um, a, a, not proselytizing or dogma, it's like offering. And in the B case, really, it's like that. People can come and take whatever they like. There's no charge for anything. And they can go. And many people come and we never see them again. Some come, go, come back, come, you know. And, and what they do with that seed or whatever it is that they got, then that's part of the movement. For, for me, that's what it's about, just plant seeds. I think Jesus said that, you know, you throw the seeds and some of them land on fallow ground and some, you know, sprout. And, but you just care, you, you give. Um, and there's a beautiful saying in the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita says, duty is your responsibility and the result is not your concern. And so it's not about you and it's not about how many students I have or, you know, it's you do your bit, you share what's working for you, what you're discovering. So you're always a student, always. And you're a teacher or a facilitator, you know, hopefully you help. It's just that you help others have an experience of their own truth and that sets them more in their journey. So the... the the teaching element is sort of where that service yeah. comes into. So then when we come to the UN or like uh, at the end of the year, I go back to Chile and there's um, the climate change conference. And the BKs have been attending that for the last 10 years. So they've been to, uh, they were at the original Rio thingo in whatever time that was. I can't remember. Rio was like 30 years, 25 years ago. And they, they have a whole team, a green team. Um, I think a lot of the time it's about our own waking up. Like we were never conscious of the environment or waste or, you know. So we have some basics, but then where do we go from there? So I think sometimes it's about our own education. And it is about being present with, yes, a, a message um, of the inside out so we can try and fix climate change all we like but if people don't shift consciousness if people still feel um like they're lacking um that they're that they're suffering if someone's suffering they don't care if they're you know, polluting, they don't care they're suffering, their own suffering is taking their entire consciousness you know and they're down in the lowest vibration possible if you've got leaders in the world and they're driven by anxiety or fear or greed they're not going to care about anything to do with the climate so if we don't put the in the equation human consciousness and and that each one who each one is and how we can stop suffering, how we can live more in the, you know, the beauty and the grace and the joy of the essence of who we are, then we can do all we like about climate change, but nothing will really change. So we're still there in an educating sort of space. We don't often, now we have more of a, a kind of positioning because we've been there for 30 years or something. 
and the message of, you know, consciousness and spirituality and like the soul in a way, not that language always, is more relevant. Yeah, you you were talking uh, earlier about your work with um, with with women, um, and one of the things about the BKs is they are predominantly, if not solely, run by run by women, which is extraordinary for uh, coming, I guess, from a, from a Western context of of religious organisations. Um, yeah. Do you want to just talk me through how how that ca- came about and yeah. how that influences what what the the organisation does? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, again, I think there's some legend and mythology around how it came about, but I'll tell you the one I like. Yeah, um, yeah, don't don't <laughs> let the truth get in the way. Have <laughs> a good story, no. Um, because I can't say, you know, it happened 80 years ago. Um, so I don't know exactly, but the story that I heard that goes like this, um, that this man whose name was, um, Lekraj Kuplani, he was known Dada Lekraj. So Dada is like respected older brother. In, in India, everybody calls everyone brother and sister, right? Um, and he was quite, um, uh, a religious devotee. He had a number of gurus and he was a wealthy businessman. He was a diamond merchant and, you know, he was very well off and he had five children and wife and he was a very, um, by all accounts, a very noble kind of character. So in in those days in that area, their community, they didn't drink, they were all vegetarian. So it was a lifestyle that was kind of a, a clean lifestyle, you know. Um, anyway, by, as the story goes, he had a series of visions out of nowhere. So he had these kind of stark visions, this stark vision, which really shook him, um, of the world going through destruction. So he saw the atom bomb being exploded before the atom bomb was exploded in Hiroshima. And, um, he, many other, you know, civil war that took place in partition in in India when when Pakistan was split off from India and that was just you know two million people died or something in the transition and so he saw like they say rivers of blood flowing you know like his people and they came apocalyptic yeah yeah that kind of thing and and you know the sorts of things we see now earthquakes and tidal waves and he saw all of that without the bit in between which was just normal life and so it was pretty horrifying and then sometime after which i have no idea how long um he had a vision of the world in absolute harmony everything and everyone in harmony you know, nature in harmony, with humans in harmony, with everything. So, you know, we would say heaven on earth. And and the question was what happened, you know, and and the sense he got and the the kind of, uh, as I mentioned, he, he, f- he got to feel illuminated too, illuminated in terms of the light shining and really waking up his consciousness was that the only way to get from this destructive path to this heavenly path on earth was for women to take the lead. 
And so it, it, that I don't know the time frame of all of this, right? But he started, he was going through this sort of illuminated, illuminated um, way of being. And in the end, that took his whole life. He sold his business to his partner. He dedicated his life. There were lots of others in the community who were having visions at the same time of, you know, Hindu stories, but of this time of transition between the dark and the light. You know, they're great stories in, yeah. you know, in whatever, whatever movie we like to think about. And, um, and a big part of that was people can say it was, you know, uplifting women, which it was. But having worked with with women now and doing my own work in that, it's less about women and more about the energy of the feminine. So I would say podcasts are that energy, you know. It's saying let's sit down and have a coffee and a glass of water and a chat and let's see what we know between us or what we're thinking about, what we're exploring, what we're discovering. And it's not anything hierarchical it's it's putting it out in the community and it's offering and it's nurturing and it's sustaining and and it's about connections and patterns and so it's it's this sort of sacred feminine that that gives value to life to each human life to the interconnectedness of everything so that's what I think it's about. And so it's not very specific then. It's not housed only in women. It's very much about waking up that energy in human consciousness. In some women, it's like a long way away from that. You know, some women are just, you know, more dictators uh, than, than the greatest dictators of, you know, history. And some men are more of this holding of this feminine, the sacred feminine, this energy of a holding, you know, like archetypal mother, mm. not my mother or your mother, but that archetype that holds the home space, so God as mother. Um, so that had been really undervalued in our society in the world you know we see i i've worked with women i'm not a mother so it's easy for me to say and harder i think if we were to do it but if i was to do it but you know we we left the home as women to be empowered because it was a completely disempowered environment for very very many women economically psychologically physically financially everything and so it, it there was a time of re-empowering but my sense is that it wasn't to be re-empowered as um individuals to get equal power to men in a system that really doesn't make anyone happy you know it really does not look at the world we got people suffering everywhere and that's the system that's driving it. So why would you want to be equal to that? That that doesn't make any sense. But yes, say, well, okay, I can choose. Now, 
if I do this work of reconnecting, what do I choose? And I choose to be in this space of, you know, receptivity, not me imposing, but I can catch, I can respond, I can also be directive, you know, it's it's the male and or the masculine and the feminine. Um, but in balance, in in harmony within each one and within the world. You know, the, the feminine of the mother nature holding the earth, holding us, um, nurturing us, and you know, like Avatar, the the out of balance masculine drive imposition just overrides and we think we can do whatever and still be sustained doesn't work so it is about bringing back into balance and a very um powerful metaphor and visual of course was to uplift women who were you know behind cows in india in terms of rights and and regard so yes, the Brahma Kumaris is primarily run by women, but if you're in Australia, no. So it's not it's not say you you have you have to be a woman to have a, a position of power because a, an, an idea like that would be just yeah. Just the same but different. Yeah, yeah, would would <laughs> would go would go so much against the ethos the of, ethos of, of yeah. soul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, and look, I I think Jack the, you know, and and we're seeing this um, all over the world in, um, you know, things. I have to say that in in religions that have been or movements that have been set up and run or run by men, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, unfortunate sort of fallout of. Um, pedophilia and corruption and things like that and doesn't mean that you don't have power and control issues where there are women because we know women are really great we're really good at controlling <laughs> or trying to um but i think too if you want to heal a world you have to put that mother energy right front and center or Maybe not even mother. I would I would like to put it more like grandmother, because your mother still has expectations of you, right? You still have this sort of sense. Oh my God, my mum's going to tell me, uh, you know, tuck my shirt in, and why aren't you doing oh, this? Clean or my room. Clean your room exactly. Shave, you know, whatever. Um, but your grandmother just loves you. And she just sees you so great. And usually she's got some sweet or something she gives you. And then she just goes, go out and enjoy, be great. You're gorgeous. And I think for me, you know, there's these old women in the Brahma Kumaris in India and, and around the world too. But the older ones, they're a lot like that. You know, it's like they pinch your cheeks and they, 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 they do the soul conscious stuff. They look at the soul and their eyes are full of power and light and they, you know, they can bore right through you with this power and love. But they're not saying you should be something. They're saying you are, you know, and, 
and you're gorgeous. And so I think I think that energy is really beautiful and important when we're talking about healing an entire planet. And mostly, you know, old people are considered a little bit irrelevant. We stick them into homes and, and discarded. Yeah. Discarded. Have I got to, time to tell you a little story? Yeah, of course. There was, um, I, and you know, you, I'm sure, enjoy seeing it if you haven't already. A TED talk uh, by a psychologist in Zimbabwe. I don't know if you. Oh, saw I haven't that. seen that. Time, no. And I mean, I won't tell his whole story, but um, it's really, really for me. It was fascinating in this area that I was just talking about, and he came to see the grave. Um, need for some solution in Zimbabwe with I don't know how many maybe they have 14 million people I don't know the population and within that the whole of Zimbabwe they have 12 they had 12 psychologists and like a huge number of the population millions suffering from depression and poverty and all of that and he said the thing that kind of pushed him into action was that this young girl he was treating uh, ended up in hospital about 200 miles away from uh, – he was in Harare, I think, and she was somewhere else. And the doctor rang and she'd tried to commit suicide. Just massive depression. And he said, look, I can't – Come there, I've got patients, I've got family, I'm 200 miles away. Keep her for a week and let me speak to her mum. So I said to the mother, in a week, bring her, come and bring her down here. Anyway, time passed, three weeks later he got a call from the mother. She'd committed suicide and he said, I told you to bring her here two weeks ago, what happened? And she said, you know, we didn't have the $15 we needed for the bus to be able to come and he thought wow there's something really out of out of order here that $15 is the difference so he could go to well let's raise some money so people but he said you know we what we're lacking is the con uh, it's a beautiful word in Spanish and I and it's holding in English but in Spanish is contención which is like a container that holds without which still leaves you free, but it doesn't in any way suffocate you, right? So it's just like a mother's, grandmother's holding, it's this holding. And so what like an, he... Like an embrace. That yeah, like exactly. Like a supportive embrace. Exactly. That's yeah. it. Beautiful. And so what he ended up doing was, and he's got beautiful stories about this, but he ended up training grandmothers in evidence-based listening and therapy. I don't know what that is, but I thought it was fascinating. So he said, because, you know, you've got all these women sitting in all these villages in nothing, not nothing to do, but it's like their, their role of active raising families and going out and getting food and cooking is, is kind of over. And they're available and he said it, they, they do an infinitely better job than the psychologists because they just they sit, you know, they're in the, the town plaza, you know, sitting on a bench and 
someone brings their little piece of paper that's their referral, you know, and he tells this story about Grandmother Jack who says, just sit down and this girl who was like really destitute, she'd lost everything, her husband ran off, gave her AIDS first and then ran off and she had three children and uh, just depressed and wanted out, you know. And Grandmother Jack's sitting outside the, you know, the consulting room and in the sun says, come and sit with me. Says, tell me, tell me, what have you got to tell me? And she just listened and the girl unloaded. And, you know, she said, wow, that's hard, huh? Is there anything else you want to tell me? And she unloaded more. She went, yeah. Wow, that sounds like it's hard. Is there anything else, you know? And sometime later, but within the year, the three kids are at school, they're doing well, she's got a job, she's doing so, you know, I I think this thing of the this energetic embrace where you feel someone's listening, they're not judging. They're holding the space. That's maybe a nice way to say it, holding the space. And they're, they're seeing the best of me whilst not expecting me to be better than I am, you know. I think that's a really beautiful gift in the world. And I feel in the essence of Brahma Kumaris, there's a lot of that. Although we do a lot of teaching and that sort of stuff, but the energy is like in some place you can just go and sit there and feel like, <gasps> you know? Yeah, just a, like a come-as-you-are type. Yeah, exactly. Now, before I ask this question, where are you from Sydney? Yes. Right. So you yes. grew up in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney. I went to Our Lady of Mercy College in Parramatta. So you, you grew up in Sydney, went to a... Catholic high school. Catholic girls college, yes. And so that was sort of the path that you were going on initially. Well, we wouldn't call it a path. It's I was born in it. And, uh, you know, I always thought that Jesus was a really good dude. You know, I like I thought, he's, wow. But I never thought he was God, you know. And I always thought there was a God. But what and how I didn't know. I used to pray to, you know all limited things at one point I used to in my late teens I used when I was at university I used to pray to die because I just felt hopeless like there was not any point to life at all and uh you know also if you ask my family they would certainly tell you that I had the tendency to the drama queen side of <laughs> side of personality which is absolutely true and I've had to understand that that's just a crazy internal um, mechanism for creating hell in your life so you know yes but I was tragic and dramatic and and I and I was deeply sad and I we didn't maybe used the word depression so much back then but I felt hopeless about life so I, I, I knew some things from a very early age. Like I knew I would not get married. No, no, not that I would. I knew that I would meet the man of my dreams, but that I would spend my life alone. I knew I wouldn't have kids. Um, I knew my life would get better when I was 27. Um, 
what else did I know? I can't remember. But I knew those things. And, From uh, quite a young age. I remember knowing them always. Right. You know? Wow. Yeah. And, and it was 27 when, I, when my life turned around, you know? So, so what happened when you were 27? Uh, I, you know what, what happened really was that I fell into a job um, that used the best of me. And so what happened was I showed up. The best of who I am showed up um, unexpectedly. So I, I had grown up wanting to be an actor, right? And my dad had said to me, don't be ridiculous. Many are called, few are chosen, you won't be. And, you know, I used to fight with my dad all the time. Not so much now. We're good now. We're good friends. Um, but he's really security conscious. He wants everything to be about being secure and so that challenged him and um but I I wanted to be an actor and so but I always wanted to please him you know I was the eldest of five children um and I I never could please him and I struggled a lot with that anyway so I did go off to study acting and I went to university but mainly what I did was party had a good time. Uh, well, I was tragic, so I never fitted anywhere. I never felt like I fitted. I, I didn't feel good enough, or smart enough, or or clever enough at acting, or, or you know, I just didn't fit. It was a, it was awful. I hated it. I looked like I didn't, but I, oh, my biggest existential kind of trauma was, someone is going to figure out that I'm a fake. You know, I was just imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome yeah. totally. But I would be whatever was required in any environment or whatever I thought was required to fit in, to be accepted. And I was just, I drank too much, I did too many drugs. I, you know, woke up in different places where I just go, what, where am I? What am I doing here? You know, it was a, just an awful time of my life. And I came back to Sydney not having completed my, we can say we, I dropped out. Um, but what happened was I woke up one day, I was sitting with a hangover and watching some terrible soap in the common room at university. Days of Our Lives. Yeah, was that the worst dynasty actually. Yeah, but I right, think I right. probably watched Days of Our Lives before and I was just on a, you know, like tragedy afternoon. But you, know, you know if the TV's on at the end of Days of Our Lives, right. <laughs> you're having a rough day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so... All of a sudden, I'm in the common room. I'm by myself. I'm probably smoking with drinking Coke or something. I don't know. And all of a sudden, I'm out of my body. Literally, I'm out and I'm looking down and I'm shocked. Thinking, how the hell did I get to this? How did this happen? You know? And I was like, get the hell out of here. You know? This is this is not good. And... That was maybe at around August or something. And I was in a play and I was producing a play in my in a drama. This was in Armadale. I went to UNE. And um and so I stayed on and I completed those two things. But I didn't finish my second year. I as soon as I finished those two things, I packed up the car and I drove back to Sydney. And then it was a, a a recovery process because I would have been then like 21, I think, 
because I, I worked for a year in a bank like my dad wanted me to um, after I left school. And then while he was overseas, I enrolled in university and uh, ran away. And then I had to come back. So, you know, just rebelling, I couldn't get that out of my mind because he was a strong message, you know, that I wanted to be enough and I wasn't and I would not make it as an actor either, so forget it. So I was struggling the whole time with all this underbelly of hopelessness. I really sound tragic, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I feel so much compassion for myself now. So I, you know, I got random jobs and I did have a job working – working in theatre and education and I was uh, a dental nurse in this singing and dancing with these kind of giant molars and (laughs) you know we'd go around to schools and uh, you know teach about dental hygiene which like I look at it as like crazy really but I had such a good time and I was healthy and happy and setting up staging three times a day and you know, dancing and singing with little kids. and So it was actually a nice time for as long as it lasted. But then that didn't, that didn't last. And I did a lot of acting, um, like uh, kind of co-op community theatre type stuff. Um, so I'd do three, two or three, three or four plays a year with that. But that was, you know, that was great. But also, you know, party life and... And meanwhile, I got a job um, casting. No, first of all, it's just a reception job to pay bills um, in an ad agency back in the 80s, which was like the crazy days of the ad agency. So more drinking and more like lunchtime drinking. It was just awful. And, uh, and then they offered me a job doing casting for their commercials. So I did that. I wasn't very good at that, really. Um, but, but I did it. And then I was headhunted to go to an agency, which was the voiceover agency. And that was the job where I kind of came into my own. Before there were such things as coaches, I was kind of coaching the artists. You know, I'd be able to support them in being the best they could be. And I was really good at negotiating I was like really good at negotiating in the first year I was there and this was the top agency in Australia um, they increased their turnover by 50 percent I renegotiated fees for the whole industry I mean it was I was like wow I I turned into something a one woman union yeah (laughs) yeah, exactly no I had been in the union in this um, you know the theatre and education too I went wow I'm very good at you know this (laughs) they didn't like it at all but so, um, but I was good at casting, I was good at negotiating with clients, making everybody feel good about, it's like, wow, I turned, and there was still, you know, drinking and drugs and all of that, but not as much like to survive. It was just because that was the context. And at one point when I was, maybe, maybe it was earlier than that, it was like when I was 25, I, I, um, I was doing a a radio commercial for Woolworths, I think it was, and I walked into a recording studio in North Sydney and I'd booked the voice talent. Um, So I was still working at the ad agency at this time and I'd booked the voice talent and I walked in and I saw this silhouette of a man 
rolling a cigarette. And this voice in my head said, that's the man you're going to marry. And I've gone, okay, let me have a look. Because I couldn't see him. I could just see a silhouette, right? And, um, and I didn't know who he was. And I, I had not worked with him before, so I didn't know who he was. Anyway, I saw him and got to meet him. I thought, well, he's really nice. And he quite liked me, apparently. So we tried to go out for a while, but it really didn't work. Um, I was still really unsure of myself I was working in the ad agency and like I was just not really all that together and he was coming out of a four-year relationship that wasn't properly resolved so it didn't work I went wow I was sure he was the dude I was going to marry you know what happened that um, voice in my head's been lying yeah, to me that's <laughs> like a wrong voice wrong voice but it was so clear and and why because I couldn't see him even it wasn't like oh he's the one I'm going to marry um but we would run into each other at industry parties over the years and he would always drive me home. We'd always be the last ones there. We'd always be like driving and drinking, like terrible and drinking and smoking dope. And, and he'd drive me home. Nothing ever happened. But he would come in and we would sit and, I don't know, probably drink more or maybe have a cup of tea. This would be six in the morning or something. And then he'd go home. So nothing ever, ever happened. Mm, a bit of a, uh, like a platonic relationship. Yeah, but we never saw each other in between that either. Right, right. So then, then I got the job in the agency, which was voiceover, which he wasn't with that agent. He was an actor, so he was with an actor's agency. And we saw each other at this party. It was in the middle of the year, maybe? Yeah, it was like June or something like that, May or June. June was like a Christmas in June. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it was weird. It was some kind of industry party that we went to. And again, we saw each other. And, and this time he said to me, you know, I think we should see more of each other. I said, oh, yeah, okay, terrific. Why not? Thinking just like, you know, platonic friends. And during the party, he kept circling around and he'd say, you know, and he had this amazing voice. So he'd say, Caroline, I think we should spend more time together. And I go, yeah, that's lovely, Michael. He goes, no, I think we should spend more time together. Anyway, the night went on. He drove me home. And this time, well, he didn't stay and nothing really happened. But, you know, he kissed me and, and I was going, oh, well, there's something. Maybe there really is something here. And he said, I think we should be together. And I said, no, it doesn't work. You know, you're too controlled and I'm all over the place. And I said, but I think you should come and join our agency. And so we had this sort of six o'clock in the morning thing happening anyway he went home again was this what one big negotiating tactic or yeah i don't know (laughs) i don't know but it was it was it went on for a while nothing at all clear i'm sure at six o'clock in the morning but he said look i'm going away for five days and he was going with all these gorgeous australian actresses at the time who were his friends he said i'm going away for five days i'll call you when i get back i said yeah sure Sure you will. And he said to me this phrase, which I remember now, and this is 30 years ago, right? And he said, Carolyn, you can trust me implicitly. I will never let you down. And I believed him. And I didn't trust really anyone. And I, least of all myself, but, and I believed him. Anyway, when he got back, he called me and we started being together and we were really together the whole time and you know some very funny stories in all of that too because I was just starting 
my um, personal development thing, I'd done what is now called Landmark Forum, but it back in those days I think I know it was still called the forum back then it'd been est and it's very provocative challenge you to face your beliefs and your limitations and and I was doing a follow-up course a seminar that went for 11 weeks on commitment and commitment was not my strong suit you know I like the freedom no I didn't the commitment no um so I these I was remember as with the they make you work with a team of within a team of four and I was twenty nine and there were these three guys who were around twenty two twenty three that were in my team and they were asking me how's your relationship going and I said yeah it's quite it's quite good this after about two months I said yeah it's quite good I think it's the I think it's the L word and they said what I said you know the the L word and they said that's Truly pathetic, you can't even say it. <laughs> so of course I can say it. And they said, well, say it. I go, well, yeah, I think it can be like, you know, that that it could be that, you know, it's love. And they said, no, nah, that's pathetic. Have you told him? I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, I'm not going to tell him. I don't do that, you know. He will have to do that first. And they, anyway, part of the thing of commitment and challenge in this course they challenged me by the time we met the next time, which was three days time for breakfast, that I will have told him, would have told him that I loved him. And they were really challenging me this after two months with him, you know. Anyway, crazy story and I did and it was, you know, he didn't respond to anything. And, um, One of those ah oh, thanks type moments. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, thanks for telling me that. No, no he just went, mm-hmm. And um, silence, right? And he said, and Carolyn, what does that mean for you? I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) But it was a really good question because it made me get really real. What did it mean? And uh, this is in the middle of the night. I crossed the bridge. He lived in Balmain. I lived in Crow's Nest. And I went driving across the bridge at 11 o'clock at night and knocking on his door and and, – and he said, so what does it mean? And I said, wow. And it made it like uh, he asked it deep in, into who I am, you know. And I remember saying, it means I'm committed to making this the best relationship that ever was. And he looked at me and he said, okay. He said, good, because I love you too. So then it was, you know, it was all cool. The movie kept going. Um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of a tragedy so the next three months were us just being together and only wanting to be together we didn't really want to go out much we just loved to kind of hang around together and I don't even remember what so much you know talking being together but we didn't live a healthy life I can tell you that there was a lot of um, enjoyment of not just good wines, but a lot of good wine. <laughs> and, you know, um, we, he was smoking. I did give up at some point. I gave up smoking, you know. Why was that? But anyway, oh, yeah, I hated the way my hair smelled. I couldn't stand it. And, um, but we smoked a bit of dope. And um, so it was, and we didn't live a healthy lifestyle. 
he was helping me to paint my house inside some of the rooms and he had a sore back and and it was you know painting ceilings so it's certainly understandable he went off to have massage he had some I don't know probably craniosacral or bowen therapy or I don't know different things and nothing was working his back was still sore so he went and saw his doctor who was a friend of his Mick had Mick sent him off for some x-rays and maybe a few days later I was at his house one night it was the doorbell rang and uh, Michael opened the door and and it was Mick and Mick was a little bit drunk I would have to say I remember and the kind of air became very dense and ominous and Mick just kind of ushered Michael over towards the dining area so I was in the living area and I was trying not to eavesdrop but I couldn't not hear them saying things and it was you know words like shadow um not good not sure need to do tests these kinds of words came at me so it was and it was difficult for his friend to tell him about this so within the next couple of days he went off and um had the tests and i remember when he came i was working in north sydney for the agency that represented we were representing him by this stage and he opened the door and I looked around and I saw his face and I just knew I knew it wasn't good news and I left and we went down we didn't talk we went in the car down by Kirribilli down by the water it was really beautiful early or late November probably early December beautiful day the water was sparkling and the sky was blue and was fresh but the the sun was warm And he just looked at me and he said, it's the worst news. And I don't remember much except that it was really sad, right? And um, and we stayed there for some time and then went back to the office. He left and I think I told my boss. And my boss said to me, I heard an interview between Caroline Jones and someone who had had bone cancer and survived. And that was on ABC last night, ABC Radio. He said, get a hold of it. So I did. And um, and it was amazing. At that time, I, I went looking for books and things, and there were really only about three books, four maximum available so Ian Gawler was the Australian um, survivor of cancer. So Ian's book, which I can't remember the name of now, then there was a book by Dr. Bernie Siegel who talked a lot about how he'd worked with children who were able to overcome cancer, like that was in the days of Pac-Man. And so he'd tell these children to send the Pac-Man in to eat the cancer. And the Pac-Man were like the good cells in the cancer. And the kids would do it because 
they didn't have logic that said that's you know ridiculous not doing that so they go okay and many of them were surviving so he was trying to get them trying to get the kids to trying to heal themselves through some sort of positive thinking yeah well yeah directing their cells to activate to destroy the cancer cells so um yeah using the mind to maneuver the body so that was really interesting to discover that and and um in those days, I think it was the first book that Deepak Chopra put out called Quantum Healing. So the whole area of quantum physics and how um, the, the, the body, the molecules are impacted by the observer and we are the observer. So, you know, we kind of went on that journey. I don't know how interested Michael was, really, but I convinced him. And one of the things that came out of this interview with Caroline Jones... And that's, um, yes, I remember we got a, a tape, a tape cassette copy. And one of the things that was really important was that um, all people that had been tracked as having overcome cancer had numerous things in common, but the one thing they all had in common was some form of meditation. Not to say that meditation healed them, but it was a key factor. And we had both, Michael and I had both gone to something about a month before his diagnosis. He had been invited by an old actor friend of his and I'd been invited by someone at work to go to this presentation of uh, Rabindranath Tagore poetry by um, Robin Ramsey, friend of Michael's. And because we'd both been invited, I said, well, maybe we should go because we'd just been staying at home, basically, enjoying being in love, you know. And, but we went to this thing, and it was nice enough, and, and that's, it, it was hosted by the BKs. Um, you know, the sort of, there was some meditation, the, the evening of poetry, and, and the offering of some courses, which, you know, I wasn't so interested in. But a month later, when I learned about this whole thing of meditation, I remember saying to Michael, or maybe that's why we went to that thing, that's the meditation we should do. So we did. Um, And at the time, I remember we got to a certain part of the way through the Raj Yoga course. And this was with Charlie, who's the guy who's been in charge, you know, forever. And he's a really beautiful teacher. He's a beautiful person very joyful and a lot of love for the path, for people, for humanity, for God. Very lovely. Um, But we got to a part which I remember was about, um, you know, this time that we're in, that there's a transformation that's going from the old to the new and it's a cycle of time. I thought this is just some other dogma, some other religion. This is not about meditation anymore. Thank you and good night, you know. So we, we didn't finish the course at the time, but we had a lot of meditation practice and we had the tapes from the meditation. And so we had about five months, five and a half, six months more. We got married in that time. So he was the man I was going to marry. And I remember we, we it was one, we lived in Balmain, right, down by the harbour at Mort Bay 
and we we started getting really healthy. I got really healthy with him. Everything he did, I you know, I did to sort of support him. So everything stopped overnight that wasn't about health and wellness and everything started that was. So we would get up early and go for a walk by the harbour and pick up frangipanis and come home and he would be meditating and I'd make breakfast and make juice and, you know, fabulous breakfast and put the frangipanis on. You know, it was like gorgeousness. Um, And... uh, I think it was about what well, was on we got married on the 17th of February and I I just turned 32 days before that and then he passed away on the 17th of April um but it was an extraordinary extraordinary time and there were many things within that um, you know, I became like a Joan of Arc. I was going to save him in spite of himself, you know, whether he wanted or not, the poor thing. Um, but it also he, he had – we were going for this walk one morning and uh, – or afternoon it was, Sunday afternoon or something, and it, like Sydney happened – used to happen anyway, those big afternoon summer storms where they just came in over the harbour and – and – the clouds it, and you know we were just walking just taking a walk and we had like rubber thongs on you know hawaiianas that they're <laughs> called now and cost 10 times more um and we we're just so then we we're running towards one of the jetties for the um the the water taxi so it's a you know like a corrugated iron structure sitting on the jetty in the harbor and we ran in, and the sound was, the rain was just like so noisy on the roof. And we were laughing, we were completely drenched. And, you know, just looked at each other and, and he said, you know, I, I don't feel I have the right to ask you to marry me because I don't know what the future is. And, and if you hadn't had been around and this had happened, I probably would have just sold everything, gone to Thailand, bought some stuff and gone out, you know. Why would I hang around? Mm. He said, but would you consider to marry me? And I said, but of course, you know. Did you say, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I said, well, when you say that, what do you yeah. mean by that? <laughs> that would have been good. I wasn't that quick. Um, so... So it was an amazing, amazing time together. There were moments really difficult, of course. He had, you know, um, the the oncologist that saw him after the diagnosis in Prince Alfred Hospital said to him, you know, I think this was the – he was there just half a day and he said, you know, I think you need to go home. You can – the the – chemo that we have is very aggressive and has a 50% chance of working so you will lose really your quality of life um, and we can do it at any time just not when you're you know 50 kilos you have to or you know 20 kilo you have to do it when you've got some resilience he said but I would just go and live life and see why you want to live go out and make it work you know and and then we can do it when you need to do it 
like such a wise, wonderful guy. Like this was 30 years ago. I met him once. I still remember his name. It's not a, he was Derek Ragavan, and that's like not a normal name, but he was such a wise and kind person in that system. So we just had that time, and you know, Michael meditated more than me. I fell asleep a lot meditating. Um, but he really meditated a lot, and it really helped us both in a number of ways. Um, the knowledge in the Raj Yoga course, which is also the meditation course, but the knowledge that says you're a soul, you're immortal, you're eternal. Michael, I remember he loved the idea of this kind of God. He said, oh, finally, an intelligent God, you know, one that doesn't intervene. And I'm going, no, what about all my prayers? <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, this ability that it, in the practice that, of I'm the soul looking out through these eyes. I'm the being listening through these ears. I exist before, during, and after this name and this form. And for him it was like a possibility of a connection. It wasn't real, but it was a possibility of a connection with a supreme being. But this body will finish at some point but I never will. And that karma means we will probably meet again because we had clearly met before. That was the feeling. And there was a sense of total destiny around, you know, what we came together for. So it was really helpful during those last five months, you know, was help manage emotions, level of detachment from you know, some story about, oh, isn't it tragic? Everyone still says, oh, I'm so sorry, how terrible, how tragic. But it was the most extraordinary time. And Michael was able to detach from what was happening to his body. He had really good concentration power. And he could detach from the breakdown of his body. So at some point, you know, he, he had primary lung cancer, he had metastasis in his liver, which was just ex distended. He had brain tumors, and, and we don't know where ever else. Um, at some point, the doctor who was treating him, who was an um, anthroposophical doctor, so the Steiner medicine tradition, which was all natural, kind of get the system in the best possible kind of order, let it heal itself. Um, he came one day and he said to me, you know, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. He, it's too far gone. We're not going to be able to save him. And he was a really amazing partner in this, you know. And I held it together long enough to get out and go to a friend's place where I was just, I was just sobbing you know, because I knew it was true. I knew it was it. It was over. And I was really just howling. I had this deep pain in my chest and such sorrow, physical pain and sorrow and just sobbing. And this friend of ours, she, you know, gave me a big hug and led me upstairs to her meditation room and I remember just sitting there, this was down by Birch Grove overlooking the Oval, and these gorgeous um, 
uh, Moreton Bay fig trees and the sun kind of coming through and and I was just sitting there and in my mind just saying, you know, God, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you do for a living, but but I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. You have to do it. And literally in that second, everything finished. The pain went away. The sobbing stopped. The sorrow disappeared. And I was under this kind of cascade, like waterfall of love, like just washing over me. And I thought I knew what love was, you know when I fell in love with Michael. Then after the diagnosis, it was even more clear, just all the barriers go. There was nothing like this. This was just this unbridled, unfettered, unconditional wash of pure love. And then I was, um, I was thinking about like a, I can say it in Australia, like a bunny rug, you know, like this, these soft blankets that you wrap babies in. And I felt like I was wrapped up in one of those. And it was made of peace. And I really had never understood that I was peaceless or that peace was a good thing to have or be. But this was like, like this holding, you know, the being held in such a kind of place of deep okayness everything is okay and then I was told what to do I got clear instructions and I don't know if it was a voice or it was thoughts or it was feelings I trans I have no idea but the message was clear and the words were clear to me so how they came I don't know and the message was you don't own this soul you are like two actors who've come together to play a scene. You don't, all you have to do, no, you don't have to worry what the next scene is. All you have to do is play this one the best that you can do it. And the way to do that is you find the joy in every moment. And that was it. And I was with this presence of this love and this peace and I was like, wow, feeling incredible with this clarity. So I went back and I sat with Michael and I didn't tell him the whole thing, but I was on fire with this energy that was around me, with me, in me. And, um, and I said to him, you know, it's like there's one path that has a kind of fork in it. And one of the paths with the fork is that you pass and you go and it's your time. And the other is you stay. And it's the one path to get to either one of those. And I think it is that we have to find the joy even in this situation, in every moment. And if you leave, you go with, joy and beauty and and I have really good memories and if you stay it's like an amazing foundation for our life so so we had 10 days after that and I 
took time off work from that moment on and I just stayed at home. And it was not always easy. He was still walking around the house and everything. He was seeing people. I, um, he had only five days in bed and he only had morphine on the last day in the afternoon. He was otherwise taking Panadine Fort and he had really, he was full of tumours. And... But he was quite um, conscious, he was quite... Like, Absolutely, lucid. With it, yeah, yeah, lucid. Yeah, 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 completely, completely. Just withdrawing, which I later understood, you know, that's what, it's kind of what the soul does as it's starting to conscious, like withdraw from life. Didn't have interest to go out after, you know, two weeks before he left, he didn't want to go outside anymore. He really didn't want to see people. But because I'm a people person and I felt he needed to close with some people, even like his old girlfriend who he never really closed with properly. So I called all these people and I said, I think if you want to, you can come and say goodbye, you know. And so people came. And, you know, his old girlfriend, and she brought a door that she had at her house. I mean, it's like crazy. And his dad and mum, his dad was an older man. And they were very, it was his stepmom. His mum was in an asylum for, she's psychotic. And his dad had never once in his life told him that he loved him. He was a very typical, very English, you know, reserved character. And anyway, I, I called them and I didn't know them. You know, we were together so shorter time and he wasn't close with them anyway and I called them one one day maybe about two weeks before but then I called and said you know I think you need if you love him you need to come and tell him that sorry to be so bold you know <laughs> and they came and Michael said to me after he said you know I think my dad was trying to tell me he loved me he's saying things like what is love one loves a fine red, a good book. He said, but, you know, he said it. But anyway, I called them the day that he had this attack, which was the day he left. And the doctor thought he had another month or two months to go. But I knew, you know, in this time that we had together, the communication, we didn't talk so much, but I, I knew everything, you know. I had to give him permission to leave. I had to tell him I would be okay. That was all fine. And that, you know, he needs to just be free to do what he needs to do. And, um, but the day, so the day he, he had this tumor burst in his brain and he was halfway to the bathroom, which was surprising. He could even walk because he had no muscles left. And, and anyway, the, the doctor came and said, I think he's got a month, a month, two at the most. But I knew it was that day. I just knew it. So I called his father and mother and stepmother and said, you know, I think it's come time to say goodbye. And they came and um, they brought his stepsister and her son, who was really young and he was like, you know, running around the house like 
running into Thomas the Tank Engine and, you know, like screaming all over the place. And the doctor said, look, really, he can't be with that noise. And they said, oh, okay, we'll, we'll go. And Martin, his father, said to me, um, Carolyn, um, I was going to go back, and um, but maybe you can give him a message for me. He's like upstairs, right, in a tiny apartment. And I said, what is that? He said, could you, um, would you, um, could you tell him I, 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 I love him? I thought, he's worse than me. <laughs> and, uh, and I just looked at him and I said, Martin, sorry, no, I think that's something you have to do. So he went up and he told his son an hour before he died that he loved him for the first time in his life, you know. So it was very beautiful. So there was all this very, very beautiful healing and the house was just full of this presence, yeah. God's presence. That's, a, that's an amazing thing that you did. To... But I think it was, I'm, I wasn't that smart back then. There was some, this presence which gave me courage to be that clear too, you know. Um, and I loved him so much. So that was the number one that he and, – and it's later people would say, and I think it's true, it's like the two souls somehow had a contract that we had to help each other through these times. You know, I was in my hopelessness and drama and life is tragic – and he had to, like, live with dignity and love. And so it was a very good contract. that, And we did it well, you know. That was a good thing. So that day he left. Uh, four in the afternoon I was lying beside him and, and I knew he took a breath and I went, oh, this is it. This is... Even the doctor's downstairs talking to my friend who's a nurse. And he said it'll be another month or two maybe. But I knew. And I go, this is it. This is the last breath. And it was like this incredible silence when no breath came after because he was struggling to breathe. And it was just silence. could hear noise from distance. And the sun was coming through the bedroom and I had this – it was a, actually a um, – a, Ice crystal ice bucket, but I was using it for. We had twenty red roses in it, and I mean, a little room, but it was just beautiful. And and I could feel him gathering his energy. Like I was lying behind him; he was on his side, and I was behind him. The breath stopped, and I could feel the energy gathering from his feet, pulling up, like leaving the body, the life force energy. And then it just stopped, like stopped. I would say now I could put, you know, the soul is in the, you know, where the third eye is in the center of the forehead behind. You know, we'd put that, but it was just like that. And there was this sense of um, nothing said but communicating, you know, like goodbye, see you soon, somewhere, sometime, Thank you for everything and like blessings as you go. And I felt that for, was a mutual thing, you know, it was incredible. So nice to remember that again. I don't often. 
And then at some point I knew it was time he had to go. And, but it wasn't thinking, it just happened. And, and my mouth opened and I said the word fly. And he left. Now, I didn't know all that stuff. You know, I really didn't. So not as a conscious Carolyn Ward, you know. But this wisdom that exists in the soul in the right conditions can arise. And I went downstairs and, well, first of all, I waited a little and I people said, you should say everything. Like, tell everything, get it all out while the body's still there. And, and I started talking after some time to the body and saying, you know, well, Michael and blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't. It was like, it's not him. It's like the table. He was gone. He was, I could still feel him, but he was not in the body anymore. You could talk to him in a different way, but not. Yeah. yeah. And he was still very present. And he was present for about 10 days. I, well, I really needed him. There were some times where I just was like, oh my God, this is too much. And I would fall on the floor sobbing and, and I could feel his presence. And I would just get up and go lie on the bed and it would pass. And then after about 10 days, I felt like I'm okay. And I said, I think I'm okay now. You can go. And, and that's it. He went. And he experienced him once more, really present, unexpectedly. And it was really, it was lovely. So, so came back to check in. And- yeah, well, I was running a, a silent healing retreat that was a week long in Chile, up in the Andes. And it was a night where the culmination of many days of healing, and it was a day of forgiveness. And we sit in a meditation at night and and just sitting there you allow all the people who you've worked through <laughs> that week that you're willing to let go, um, even if you don't know how, but you bring them in front of you and you forgive them, you ask for forgiveness if it's necessary. And I didn't really have anyone that I needed to at that point. And I was just sitting there, but I allowed that that could happen. All of a sudden he he was there in front of me and he was, I think nothing about forgiveness or anything maybe. Um, but I saw how much he loved me and I'd forgotten how much he loved me. So it was really very, very, very beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that was like 20 years later. Yeah. 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 But still that, yeah. You can sort of reconnect with that with that yeah. with that soul, with that presence. Yeah. Really beautiful. So then after that, I mean I was in a very blissful kind of state, but I knew my life didn't belong to me anymore. It was so like that was so extraordinary. I discovered a whole other, you know, beyond the matrix. Really, it was like, wow. Nothing nothing of the previous. So I I was waiting to see what I needed to do and I felt my life belonged to God, whatever that meant, I had no idea. And um, I I remember opening one of Michael's books, it was Marcus Aurelius Meditations, and I opened it to get some guidance and it said, um, in all respects ask the gods for advice or help. Three hours meditation will do. 
Oh, that's an awful long time. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I mean, okay, Sunday. So I I had an hour in in a meditation space, the room upstairs, I, an hour downstairs, and then I went for an hour down by the harbour, and I just sat Sunday afternoon. It was sunny, nice afternoon. And all of a sudden I saw this vision of Africa. And I knew it was Africa because there were giraffes and zebras and things on the plains. And I've gone, Africa? You know, you want me to go to Africa? So I did. I I bought, um, I didn't know why or what or where or how for or, or what for or how. So I bought a, a an overland trip for two months in a truck. I thought, Let's see. At least I'll get there and I'll feel a bit safe. Um, but in between, I went. I was invited to go to before I went on the trip. I was invited to go to a retreat um, by Robin, this actor friend of Michael's, with the B case. And I went, and I had such an extraordinary experience of these higher states of being, just hanging around really and I argued with some of the sort of models of belief or whatever but I also saw the way in which these people who were so unbelievably different from each other 20 people like a spectrum of different kinds of people all being together with respect and kind of harmony, I went, wow, that's weird. That would not happen in my world, you know. <laughs> There's something here that's pulling them together. And I was just feeling like more blissful and blissful and blissful. And on the way home I was driving back and driving into the afternoon, you know, like it was sunset, it was winter. And... So it wasn't sunset, but it was afternoon sun and I was looking at the sky and the Sydney sky was just alive with colour. I couldn't believe, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Wow, something magical going on. And of course, it's just I'd never seen it before because I'd never been open to that, that level of beauty. I'd been in my own trauma and tragedy much of my life. And so... I got home, I parked the car, I went down to the harbour side. I'm looking and no one else could see it. I'm thinking they're just walking along, talking. And on the eastern side, it was just these sort of, you know, those stretched, kind of amazing stretched clouds that were all pink and purple. And, and on the west, these cumulonimbus, which were gold and red, and they were rolling over each other. I'm like, this and then a few days later I could feel the this high level of beauty and bliss just kind of starting to fade and I went no I I don't want to be dependent on going to a retreat or other people or to feel like this I want to know how to do this for myself and so I called and I went and I started practicing and uh there we are one thing led to another one thing led to another and you know i haven't been the um uh the model poster bk by any means you know 
as I say, for me, and I've struggled with being part of an institutional framework while trying to wake up to an unlimited sense of self. But in the end, I think that struggle has just been my own struggle and my own compartmentalization internally, my own dualism rather than, and, and I've come to be much more at peace with that, which maybe just is old age, Jack, <laughs> <laughs> as I mature. Just coming to terms with the, uh, the organization that you've got well, involved with. Coming to terms with me and, and it's all okay and I don't have to change them, me, anyone. Just do my, do my work. Yeah. Perhaps it's a, uh, an acceptance, a, a reciprocal acceptance of what they're offering you and what yeah. you've offered them. Yeah. And, and I have to ask, did you, end up, did you end up going to Africa? I did. And yeah. what, 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 what eventuated there? What eventuated? Look, you know, I, I told you about when I was at uni and, you know, growing up, I tried to fit in everywhere and, you know, at school I was, you know, one of the cool I never thought I was. I always felt like I was so uncool trying to be with the coolies. But I met someone recently who said, oh, you were so cool at school. I was so not. <laughs> anyway, so I always try to fit in. And, and when I realized that this was going to be my path, because this presence that was with me, this incredible love and peace that was still with me after all this time, it wasn't like it went away, that... I felt there was this total fit when I would go into the meditation and sleep <laughs> or <laughs> listen to the teachings. I didn't understand any of the teachings. It was a lot of reference. Well, it seemed like a lot of reference to Hinduism, even though now I would say well, it's not, but you, there is some. So I, I didn't understand so much the teachings, but I felt the same presence in the the, the words coming at me that was with me. So I said, okay, this is, this is a fit for me. But there was a whole group of um, uh, actors. It was a big group of actors and artists who were at that time part of the BKs. They're, they're actually all my friends. They mostly live in Melbourne. Um, but I could feel this part of me going, oh, I want to, I want to be part of that. And I went, whoa, that's, that's really dangerous because it's just like be the same personality in a different context. Try and belong, become like them, behave in that way. No, I, I, I will not arrive to my own resting place of inner truth on that same path again. By so, trying to sort of mold by yourself. trying to mold myself and fit in mm, and belong mm. and be friends with and and so I kind of welcomed and the the thing with the going to Africa because I'd said well my life belongs to God and I'd asked God whatever God was um, to tell me what's next and I got this Africa thing uh, so I said well it's for me it's the same being, presence, wisdom, whatever that I, I had before I started on this path as I have now. So I, I'll go to Africa. And so in Africa what happened 
was it was about me really depending on my own resources. I took a whole lot of the teachings with me in a tiny little book, which I wouldn't be able to read now, but I reduced everything to, you know, a a six size, so a tiny little writing I copied and bound and and I got up at four o'clock in the morning in a t- in my tent, and or I lay beside. I did the fire because I would be the first one up in the morning, so I would make sure the fire is still going. In fact, most of the time I slept beside the fire underneath the stars, um, unless it was a lion park <laughs> or something like that. And um, what happened was, I it wasn't always easy because I also was a vegetarian. I cooked my own food. Um, I got up early. I didn't drink. Uh, I mean, I lived a whole kind of, you know, extreme, in a sense, yogi lifestyle while being with a group of 16 people who were partying and drinking and, you know. On their holidays. On their holidays. And, And I was on this vacation, but this kind of, foundation part of my journey with God. Uh, No one else to help me. No one else around. The people I was with, nothing. The woman who was in charge of the cooking, she hated me. She hated (laughs) that I was – and she didn't want to give me lentils. I didn't even know how to cook lentils. I didn't even know they existed before that. But she didn't want to give me stuff, you know, but I, I stuck to my guns and in the end she got really bad malaria and she was so awful no one would help her. And, I mean, I just helped her and people would say to me, but how can you? She was such a bitch to you, you know, and I go, yeah, but she's really suffering, you know. So I had a really um, – and I wasn't a good person really. I wouldn't say a good-hearted person. I was – before I started this whole journey, I was pretty critical and – you know, exclusive and those things. So it's not like I'm a saint person, but I just felt I could do that. So it was a it was two months where I got to really kind of put in place fundamentals of me being de- independent and interdependent with this study and learning and company of God um, at an energetic level where I was really experiencing the presence and not needing to fit belong because I really didn't fit or belong to any of those people. I had to go beyond that. So it was it was formation. It was a time of sort of setting me up for this path where I wouldn't, fit which was my existential tragedy my whole life you know my trauma and I had to face it and and just resolve that with the presence of the divine of God of that one and so it was a very good foundation for my life just that that point in time where it, it's you relying on yourself and you sort of become attuned to, to what what you are. 
and self-reliant and, and I guess the goal is becoming self-assured. Yeah, and, and I don't think it was complete by any means, but I, my go-to place was, it had to be inside and up, you know, like to this, and this presence, I still had this presence with me, which was not me, was there was me and then there was this presence, which was not quite me. So um, that was it. That's all I could depend upon. Um, nothing else. I, and people looking at me like I'm a weirdo because really, let's face it, I was. <laughs> you know, really. Um, so that held me in good stead. And, you know, as it turned out, all these people that I wanted to be friends with, I am friends with because they're my kind of people, you know, but I'm also relatively independent um, within that also and and I am resourceful and I and I'm not a, I'm not stoic and alone. I do um, I do have friends that if I'm struggling with something, they work great as a sounding board. But in the end, my my primary go-to is, you know, inward and, and upward. Caroline, that is an amazing story. I'm so glad you shared that with me. That was very, very generous of you and thank you very much. And that's and probably a good place place to leave it. Yeah, and thank I mean, you, I, Jack. I wouldn't want to, you know, keep keep eating into your afternoon. Well, I don't think we've... I think yeah. Yeah, yeah, done. yeah. So thank you very much, Caroline, for joining me today, and um, and thank you to everyone for uh, for joining us.